0: Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is great news. Is Jesus the Messiah? For those of us who are Christian or grown up Christian, this is not really a big question for us. We have sort of assumed it from the moment that we uh, had faith. Many of us, even if we came to faith as adults, did not live life as a Jew. And so we didn't have the concept of a Messiah or having to look for one or waiting on one or anything like that. And so it's not really a concept that Uh, sparks a lot of power for us today necessarily, but it was a big issue for the first hearers of the gospel, according to Matthew. So remember who that first audience is first century Jews. They've kind of heard about the things that have gone on this Jesus guy, and maybe he was healing. He was some kind of magician or something. And he he said he was a rabbi, but he didn't have any schooling and all the students were like old fishermen or something. You know, if you just have this vague concept that there was this guy he, he he could be he could be the Messiah or maybe it was this guy over here you know that John the Baptist he was a good candidate he had a ton of followers and he was baptizing people and talking about repentance and forgiveness as well and so Matthew's coming uh, onto the scene with his gospel to really clarify uh, who the Messiah is what Jesus's life is about why it's so clear that Jesus is. In fact, the Messiah. So, for those of us who are Gentiles, or those of us who are, have grown up Christian and have not been waiting on a Messiah, have not been looking for one for centuries and centuries culturally, this is still important for us because the Messiah is God's anointed one. And scripture, the Old Testament scripture, talks a lot about it. We can look at history and see that before the time of Jesus, People were waiting for such a person. The scriptures that we hold true did predict such a person would come along. We do see that Jesus fulfills that role in the things that he said and did and actually exceeds expectations. And so it becomes an apologetic for us, even if we're not Jewish. So remember, uh, apologia, the Greek word, means to give a defense. And so an apologetic is how we give a defense of the things that we believe something that we ought to be able to do. It's one reason I do these lessons is so that you feel confident in the text that you're reading. So uh, Matthew comes along to to give a defense of uh, who this Jesus is and some of the things we may not understand fully or feel their full impact unless we realize sort of the historical context in which Matthew is writing. So we're trying to look at Matthew from a storytelling perspective, standpoint, right? And what we've said is he's really building an argument here. He's building an argument for his fellow Jews primarily. It's uh, lessons, many of the smaller lessons inside, of course, uh, go beyond the boundaries of ethnicity or culture or religion even. But the the, the big tenet of Matthew really is for his fellow Jews. And it was uh, a huge part of Jesus's public ministry. It becomes a huge part of Paul's letters as he's writing to churches that are filled with both Jews and Gentiles. This is one of the issues that Paul has to deal with. And that is the issue of religion versus discipleship. And so we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses religious people versus disciples. It's not lost people versus saved people. It's religious people versus disciples. Religious people, you've set up this little box for yourself, your understanding of what the law means, your understanding of what righteousness is, even your understanding of who the Messiah will be. And Jesus comes along to say, hey, I didn't come to do away with those things, but I did come to explode them to their full size. I did come to blow them up to their proper size, which is infinitely beyond what you're expecting And so Jesus comes really challenging expectations, again, not by destroying anything or removing anything uh, spiritually, but instead, in terms of the law, he comes to fulfill it, to fill it full, to make it make it big. And so this theme of religion versus discipleship is really one of the big tent poles of the gospel of Matthew makes sense, given his audience. And we've looked at how Matthew is divided into five discourses. And uh, I've given them my own little titles here. They're, they're called um, lots of other things traditionally, but um, it's all about the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom is not a place. It's not even a group of people. Instead, it is uh, a, a, an idea, the fact that God is king, the kingness of God. And so when Jesus comes on the scene with the gospel in Matthew 4, 17 and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close by. It's near. You can reach out and touch it. Um, he is talking about the reign of God, not just some military campaign or some government campaign. And so it's, we've broke, the Gospel of Matthew is broken up into these five discourses, and they're all about the kingdom and the righteousness that's tied together with that kingdom. And so first the kingdom is announced. Jesus comes on the scene, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, says, here's what the kingdom is going to be all about. Here's what it's going to look like when the kingdom is fully here. When people live fully under the reign of God, this is the way life looks. Then, uh, the next section is about kingdom authority. And it's not just discourses, but it's narrative and discourse. And so, just like with the Sermon on the Mount preceding that, you have Jesus showing up and doing things that sort of begin his ministry. With the kingdom authority section, you have Jesus showing that he has authority over uh, demons, over, uh, sickness and illness and leprosy and uncleanness, even sin. Uh, death. He's able to raise people from the dead. And so he shows in a, a set of stories all packed together nicely that he has authority over all of these things, all the things that you would need to have authority over to um, for, for God to, to, to reign in the world. Jesus shows that he has authority over all of those things. And that's just a reminder that Matthew is not put together chronologically. It's not grossly unchronological, but Matthew's concern is not chronology. Matthew is not uh, writing an almanac. He's making an argument to his fellow Jews. And so everything is not put together chronology, uh, chronologically. Instead, it is put together thematically. It's put together uh, with uh, certain ideas in mind. And so the idea of the authority section is to show that Jesus has authority over all of these things. And so it's story after story after story of healings, uh, expelling demons, and these kinds of things. So now we come to the third narrative and discourse set. Oh, well, the kingdom authority discourse was what we call the missionary discourse. It's where he sends out the 12 that he's chosen. He has authority and he gives them the authority and he sends them out to uh, do the same things that he's done. Remember what he said back in Matthew four nineteen. the first words that he says to his disciples, follow me. In other words, go where I go, see what I see, hear what I teach, watch what I do. Then you teach the things I teach. You do the things that I do. And in Matthew um, chapter 10, he does those things. He sends them out. He says, you go out, you do the healings, you cast out demons and you preach the gospel. You preach the good news. And so Jesus gives them authority and sends them out to do that. So now we come to the third section, here, which is the kingdom arrival. The fact that the reign of God is, is actually here already in some way that it's uh, already among the people. And there's some question about that. And so the the text starts off with a question from John the Baptist himself, the person who ought to believe in Jesus more than anyone. And he has a question about, you know, is is this it? Is this really the kingdom? And so we're going to skim through these next two chapters, 11 and 12, as we look at all the different ways that Jesus sort of proves, yep, this is it. This is the kingdom. And here's what it really means. And this sets us up for the kingdom arrival Discourse, which is the parables discourse, where Jesus says, you know what? The kingdom is like this. And he has several parables about what the kingdom is like. So let's get right into the text and uh, start to answer. uh, As we look at kingdom arrival, start to answer this question. Is Jesus the Messiah? And if so, what does that mean? So we're in Matthew 11, chapters 11 and 12. We'll start right here in verse one. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. Okay, I'm going to start right there. I know we haven't gotten very far yet, but I want to start right there. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this. If I have, it's only once. I haven't really hit it very hard. But these five sections, these five discourses, the narrative and discourse these five sections here in the, the the big middle of Matthew, you know that a section has ended because it'll say something like this, when Jesus had finished doing this thing, when Jesus had finished. And at the end of the fifth narrative discourse section, before it begins the passion section, that's marked by uh, the, the phrase, when Jesus had finished all of these things. And you can see that phrase tied, tied back to uh, Moses giving the law. And then it will say, you know, when Moses had finished saying these things. And so once again, just hammering the point home that Jesus is like Moses, but better. Jesus is like Abraham, but better. Jesus is like David, but better. And so now we're getting the idea that Jesus is like the Messiah you've been waiting for, but better. And so, um, in fact, he's he's like John the Baptist, but better. Remember, John the Baptist was a big personality at the time. Matthew talks a lot about John the Baptist, includes John the Baptist quite a bit. He was a big personality for the time and two people looking at Jesus that had 12 followers, essentially, he had maybe 120 at the time of his crucifixion. And then John the Baptist that had followers all over the Mediterranean, you kind of look at those and go, well, I don't know, this Jesus guy's got kind of a small group, but wow, this John the Baptist guy has a big following. And so John the Baptist is included a lot in John's gospel so that John the Baptist through Matthew's writing has the chance to say, Jesus is the guy you should follow. Jesus is the one that um, we've been waiting for. So back to the text. So when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison, remember, John's been arrested. It was after that John was arrested that Jesus comes out to do his ministry. Um, Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him. Now, notice it says what the Christ was doing, what the anointed one, what the Messiah was doing. It doesn't say what Jesus was doing. Now, it uses Jesus' name in verse 1. It uses Jesus' name again in verse 4. This could be Matthew just, you know, uh, changing it up a little bit, you know, uh, changing his writing style, uh, kind of giving it some flavor. I think probably as a storyteller, the reason he would use that word right there and not in verse 1 and not in verse 4 he would use it right there so that the narrator can go ahead and give his opinion about who the messiah is. John is asking a question about the messiah, but the narrator is making it clear before the question is even asked, hey there's there's no question here. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the messiah. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now you can almost not fault John for asking this question. I mean, one of the things the Messiah is going to do is, you know, release the imprisoned. <laughs> where's John? Well, he's in prison. Right? And again, John was uh, faithful and John is a a relative of Jesus in some kind of way. And so you, you can kind of see John the Baptist going, "Hey, if you're the Messiah, what am I doing in here?" So you can almost not fault him for asking this question. But I suspect the reason it's printed here for us in the gospel for us to read is because it holds for us some real truth in the way Jesus answers. So let's take a look at that. Jesus replied to him or replied to them, the the disciples that have come to ask. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor are told the good news and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So why doesn't Jesus just say yes? I mean, the question is, Hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting on? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Jesus could have just said, no, that's me. I'm it. Well, why doesn't he say that? Well, rhetorically, certainly he does. Uh, Rhetorically, you know, he's being very clear. Yes, I am, as evidenced by the things that I'm doing. So you remember back a few chapters ago when he was presented with someone with an infirmity and he said, Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And his point is, Well, of course, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because if you say, Take up your mat and walk, then if the power, the authority you have has to be proven when the man takes up his mat and walks. So when Jesus forgives him of sins, they say, well, this guy can't forgive sins. And he says, well, you would also think that I can't tell him to take up his mat and walk. So I'll tell you, take up your mat and walk. That way you'll know I also have the authority to forgive sins. He tells the man, the man takes up his mat, walks away, proves Jesus' authority over both the man's infirmity, but more importantly, over sin. So what you have Jesus doing is something that you can see To show that he has authority over the thing that you can't see. So here he's really doing kind of the same thing. I mean, ask anybody, hey, are you the Messiah? Anybody could say, yeah, I am. Absolutely. Anybody could say yes. But who could say, go tell John what you see doing, what you see me doing, what you see happening. Go tell John what you see in here. No one else could say that but Jesus. Right? And then he gives this list. Let's look at the list again. Uh, The things that are happening, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the leprosy is being cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor actually have good news for once, right? What is, where is this list? Where does it come from? Well, it uh, definitely models some things from Isaiah and they're all sort of spread out from different parts that list all the verses and and that sort of thing here. You can do that research on your own with your uh, concordance or commentary, uh, faith life study Bible, free app. Can use that. There are pieces from uh, all different places in Isaiah. Isaiah certainly a prophecy. Isaiah certainly has a lot to say about the Messiah. And some people would say, and you've probably maybe heard this. Well, you know, when Isaiah said those things, he wasn't thinking about Jesus. You know, he was talking about the prophecy of the things that were going on, and in, in the context of that particular story in Isaiah. And Jesus is sort of cherry picking these things and pointing him to to himself. People who believe that will also be quick to point out, you know, Jesus never wrote anything, right? Jesus didn't write the gospels. Jesus didn't write Paul's letters. Jesus didn't write any of our spiritual text. Uh, it was these other people, it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, that wrote uh, the, the, the New Testament. And so these men that wrote about it, they, they pulled these things from Old Testament scripture, just really kind of put the hard sell on this Jesus guy. Well, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that there's a little more to it than that. And so without getting into all the technical history and all that, what you should know about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that it's more than just copies of the Old Testament, but it's also a lot of commentaries on what we call the Old Testament, commentaries on the scriptures. And the reason they're important is because they date, most of them date from before the time of Christ, and they were all very well preserved in the arid climate down around the Dead Sea. They were back in a cave. They were out of the weather. The uh, air there is um, pretty much the same throughout the year. And so they were very well preserved for uh, almost two millennia, Uh, in uh, some cases longer. And so what you have in there is you have copies of scrolls of what we call Hebrew scripture. Those are important because we're able to look at what the Hebrew scriptures were like At that time, before the time of Jesus, a couple of centuries possibly before Jesus was born. And what we see is they're pretty much word for word, like what we have when we look at the scriptures today. And so that gives us a lot of confidence in the scripture because it shows it really hasn't changed that much. That's a, another argument you'll hear is that it gets changed and changed and passed down, and it's this game of telephone. And when you play that analogy out, it, it really doesn't work. It really doesn't make any sense. And more importantly, the historical evidence just shows otherwise. When you look at the scrolls in the Dead Sea from the Dead Sea Scroll collection, uh, a little town called Qumran is uh, near where they were found. And so when you look at the Qumran scrolls, what you find is that they are remarkably similar, almost exactly like what we have today in terms of the Hebrew scriptures. But like I said, more than just the Hebrew scriptures, there was commentary. And this is important because it lets us know what Jews and Jewish sects of believers what they believed about those Old Testament scriptures in a time before Christ. So whenever you have someone saying, well, this has been Christianized, Christians have looked back at this text and forced Jesus into it. Well, then you can go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can see what commentaries are there and what those sections of scroll had to um, had to say about some of the ideas from scripture. Now, they're not exactly like our commentaries that we use today, but it's the same kind of idea. It's just somebody's thoughts on the text that they've read. So they're not meant to be taken as scripture or anything like that, but they do have historical value in that they show us what was culturally believed by different groups of believers at the time. And in this case, times before Christ. And one of the scrolls, one of the segments of the scroll that you find there is a section that lists almost these exact things that Jesus quotes here from these various places in Isaiah. And the section of the scroll is talking about the Messiah that is to come. And it's saying that the Messiah will do all of these things. So that is historical evidence that shows us it's very clear that the people before the time of Christ, Jewish believers, before the time of Christ, believed a Messiah was coming who was going to do these things. So when Jesus says, tell John what you see and hear," and here's the list of things that you've seen and heard, he's not just talking about the things that he's done, but he's specifically pointing to ideas about the Messiah that people had. He's saying, look at all the expectations I'm fulfilling about what you think about a Messiah. So when we look at Isaiah, when we consider the thoughts from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that should be enough For us to know, not only is Jesus claiming that he is the Messiah, but he's uh, adopting their expectations of, of the Messiah in order to answer the question. So anybody could just say, yes, but only Jesus can say, I've done the things that you expect when looking for a Messiah. I've done all of these things. It's well documented. Everyone knows it, everyone's seen it. One further point here, which is worth pointing out, and that is to look at. Psalm 146. So um, go over to Psalm 146. I will also have it here on the screen and I'll read it if you don't want to turn over there. And it's a short Psalm. It's near the end of the Psalm book. I don't know when this Psalm was written, but clearly written before the time of Christ. Psalm 146, the God of compassion. Right? Hallelujah, my soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Put the text on screen for you, sorry. We'll start over. Um, Hallelujah, my soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not trust in nobles and a son of man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, He returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob. So in other words, don't trust people. Instead, trust the Lord. Trust God, the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. And whenever you see Lord like that in um, the small caps, that means it is a translation of the Tetragrammaton. Or the four letters, God's name, God's holy name. And you'll see that a number of times in the psalm. Uh, Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Zion, your God reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. So you can see here in Psalm 146, as it sort of rattles off all the things that God does, that the Lord does for his people for the people who trust in him. Remember, when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about trusting and following Jesus, trusting and following the Lord. And this Psalm is about people who trust the Lord. It says, when you trust the Lord, here's what you will see the Lord do. And so all of these things have been put in the domain, not just of the Messiah, but really have been put into the hands of God himself. And so in answering the way Jesus does in Matthew 11, here at the beginning of this section, Jesus is in fact saying, Not only am I the Messiah, I am God. I have the authority of God. Now, that's some big talk, right? It's this kind of talk that's going to really get him in trouble with the religious people because it's going to be blasphemy if they don't believe that he's actually God. And so... It's very easy for us to skip over this and go, "Oh, this is something about John the Baptist," and um, yeah, Jesus is quoting some Old Testament scripture, and this was probably important to them at the time, or this is just a report of things going on. But when you dig in and you see the storytelling that's happening here, and you see the the, the historical context around what's being told, and you're able to connect it to other parts of Scripture. Suddenly, you can see how really vastly important this text is. And I want to go back just a second to this list of the five discourses. We've talked before, as we've talked uh, from the um Robert Alter, this is the Robert Alter uh volumes that I've been using for the Old Testament series that we've done. We talked a lot about chiastic structure and how you have sort of A, B, C, D, and then you have the chi, the thing that changes everything. The chi is the Greek letter. It looks like an X. right? That changes everything. And then you have D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. You have sort of the story told in reverse order, but now everything is changed because of that thing that happens in the middle. And so whereas our stories are sort of beginning, middle, end, Ancient Jewish stories are beginning, middle, beginning. So you have the first part that plays out, everything changes, and then it plays out in reverse with everything now changed because of what happens in the middle. That's the basics of chiastic structure. So if you have Matthew, who's a Jew, who's well-versed in Hebrew scriptures, who's well-versed in making Hebrew arguments to Hebrews, and he's writing an account of the Hebrew Messiah to the Hebrew people, it seems... Kind of obvious to me that he's going to make use of some kind of idea of chiastic structure. And so what I've got here, the 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 five discourses listed here. As you look at the one in the middle, kingdom arrival, that's the one that we've just entered into. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom is coming. The reign of God is coming. Hey, I've got authority over all of these things in the world. So God has given me authority to do all these things. And now with this kingdom arrival passages, what Jesus is really saying is, I am God. I am here. I am the kingdom. I'm the king. And so this is really the kai. It's really this section here in the middle that's going to change everything. It's kind of right in the middle of the book of Matthew, certainly right in the middle of these five discourses. He's going to explain what the king is like, what the kingdom is like, what God is like, what Jesus is like, since he is God. And that is going to change everything for the rest of the story. So this is Really important section that's easy to skip over. But when you see structurally, storytelling-wise, where it falls, it's easy to see that it's really, really super important, this section on kingdom arrival. So now let's go back and start uh, breaking through some of this uh, text before we run out of time. So after this, Jesus has some words to say uh, about uh, John the Baptist and um uh, essentially, uh, part, part of this section is, Hey, uh, somebody comes along and tells you bad news and you, you gripe at him for, for bringing b- bad news. And somebody comes along bringing good news and you gripe at him for being over optimistic. And he says, you know, you're just not willing to really accept anything, but, uh, whether you're willing to accept it or not, this is the Elijah that you've been waiting for. Remember Elijah comes before the Messiah. Jesus is saying, Hey, I'm the Messiah. And this was my Elijah. You missed him. And then there's a section here in verse 16 where he talks to this unresponsive generation. To what should I compare this generation? And this is where, again, he's talking about uh, the the section I just said about uh, looking for um, a a lament or a dance. Verse 20 comes down here to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were done in you. If the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. So what does that mean? Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida are Jewish towns. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile towns. And Jesus is saying, hey, if I'd done all this in the Gentile sections, they would have repented. But here I come to the people that ought to understand who God is and what God's righteousness means and what his word means. And you guys didn't repent. And he says, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I just want to let you know, so that, again, that you can have confidence in the text and confidence in the words of Jesus. I have been to Chorazin. I've walked on the floor of the synagogue where Jesus has preached. I have been to Bethsaida. I have seen houses that were probably neighbors of Peter uh, and um, James and John. I have been to Capernaum. I've been to Peter's mother-in-law's house where Jesus stayed. I've uh, been on top of the synagogue where Jesus has preached and healed. And I've been to the area of Sodom outside of the Dead Sea. And what I can tell you about all four of these places is that 2,000 years after this woe to you speech, they're all still rubble. So, you can take that with a lot of confidence when Jesus gives curses or blessings. And so, right out of this woe speech, he goes into This prayer here in verse 25. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Of course, Jesus is talking about his own disciples there. But what's very interesting is he is kind of quoting from Daniel. And so uh, these scriptures are from Daniel chapter 2 verses 23 and 21. So you notice I didn't say 21 and 23. That's because he quotes them out of order. He And he, he doesn't exactly quote them. He actually inverts them. And so what the verses in Daniel, if you go look those up, Daniel is saying, thank you, Lord, that you instruct us. And that makes us wise, that you give us this revelation. And that makes us wise. And Jesus sort of turns that on its head and says, you have taken people who are unwise and you have given us your instruction And so not only is Jesus inverting the meaning of the text, but he actually inverts the text itself in the way that he quotes it. Really excellent storytelling happening here. And so what's the point of this? What he's saying is these things, uh, well, it's it's like this. We have a, a climate right now where you can get on Twitter and you can see people who have PhDs saying just some of the dumbest things, just things that don't make any sense. And you can see uh, farmers who don't even barely have a high school education uh, who, saying things that make much more sense, right? And this is sort of the thing that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the wisdom that comes from the Lord. The world looks out here and says, we're going to build up all of this knowledge for ourselves, and that's going to give us this great wisdom. And then you look at the people who are the humble followers of God, and they have the real wisdom from the Lord, and they're able to navigate life much better in many ways, even though their lifestyle may remain meager and they may do without a lot of things. And so this is really about wisdom. That wisdom comes from the Lord. What is the source of that wisdom? What is the goal of that wisdom? So we continue on here with this text. um, That uh, verse 27, all things have been entrusted to me by my father. And so now Jesus is using this father-son language very strongly so that everyone understands. Now, again, we don't have this concept as much in our Western culture, but if you are the son of someone else, that means you you have everything that is theirs belongs to you, that you will inherit everything, that uh, who they are really becomes who you are. In Eastern culture, even today, people don't ask, what do you do for a living? What's your job? See, in America, that's sort of how we define people. What's your job? What do you work at? What's your passion, right? That's not how people, even even in Eastern society today, people ask, who is your father? They want to know, what's your lineage? Where do you come from? Who are your people? Because that's going to tell them everything that they need to know about you. And so when Jesus says, I am the son of God, what he is saying is everything that is God, I am that in essence, And so he is making himself equal with God by saying that he's the son here. We say, well, he's the son. So he's lesser than the father. That's not it at all. It's actually the exact opposite. When Jesus says that he is the son of God, he is saying, I'm I'm making myself equal with God. And then he gives this uh, beautiful entreaty here. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light in a Jewish religion where um, people had to be selected, hand selected by um, professional rabbis. Rabbis had studied for decades and decades and memorized all kinds of scripture and all that for the average person for fishermen to be pulled off a boat and told you're going to be my disciple. Um, this was just marvelous news. This was such a uh, an, an inversion. This was such a turning the world upside down, turning turning an understanding of everything upside down for the people of the time. And so Jesus, what he says is not work hard so that you can attain the knowledge that you need to understand who I am. What Jesus says is in fact the exact opposite. I am lowly. I am humble. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's within reach. It's not far away. It's not about how hard you work. I'm here to provide rest. I'm here uh, to make your life easier, something that would have been of great comfort to people that were working a very hard life in the first century. Only a few minutes left. Let's move on to chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with Jesus walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. They pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, it should be made clear that it is absolutely lawful based on the text, not based on the Pharisees' understanding or the man-made laws that they had made for themselves. But if you go look at the actual law, it's perfectly lawful for people to glean on the Sabbath, which is what they're doing. They're just gleaning things that have been left behind. Obviously, it's okay to eat on the Sabbath. Even when there was manna, you could still eat the manna. You just couldn't go out and work and collect the manna. So there's nothing that's being done here that is actually violating the law. Remember, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came instead to fill it full, to fulfill it. And so Jesus responds to them and gives them a history lesson. <laughs> Don't you remember what David did when he ate the bread of the presence, All right? And then he talks some more about the Sabbath. And then he says this in verse seven, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have c- condemned the innocent. Now we've heard this phrase before just a couple of chapters ago. Jesus gives this um, lesson as well. I believe it's in the story where he says the man's sins are forgiven and go and take up your bed and walk. He says, you should know what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is the second time he's told teachers of the law, you need to understand what this means. Again, this is a real core theme of Matthew. This is about religion versus discipleship. This is about being in the club doing everything right, or trusting and following Jesus. The passage right before this doesn't say work real hard and do everything right and check all these boxes and you'll be in the club. And then you'll be, boy, you'll be safe on the last day. That's not what he says. What he says is follow me, trust me, come and rest, come to where I am, follow me, trust that I'm going to do the things that the Messiah does, trust that I'm going to take care of you. And he repeats that here. Remember, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not that Jesus doesn't ask for sacrifice. He asks for everything. Ask for your whole life, right? But what he's talking about here is the idea of people who um, have real complex religious setup that they do almost out of a loss versus people who do things out of mercy, people who do things out of compassion, people who um, imagine an actual sacrifice in the time of Moses. Someone makes a sacrifice because, oh, I got caught doing this thing. Now I got to sacrifice this animal. Imagine that attitude of sacrifice versus I have sinned and I want to make it right. And I desire mercy. I love mercy. And that's why I'm going to offer the sacrifice because I, I want the mercy of the Lord. You see those two attitudes and how different they are? Same action, same sin, same response, the same actions, but the heart Remember from the story of David, God sees with the heart and God sees to the heart. It's the heart that's different. A heart for mercy, not a heart for sacrifice. The sacrifice is in the action, but it's the heart is for mercy. So next we see that there's a man with a shriveled hand coming into the synagogue. And Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, By by the way, right before this, this is a big thing we should not have skipped. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, after he gives them this lecture uh, about the the eating of the grains. With Jesus saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, Sabbath is God's territory. Even God, even God rests on the Sabbath, right? Um, Even God rested on that seventh day of creation. The Sabbath is holy territory. It belongs totally to God. It belongs to God. Even the people who observe it doesn't belong to the Jews. It belongs to God. And what Jesus is letting them know is I, Jesus, am Lord of the Sabbath. So he is again doubling down. I am God. This is my Sabbath. I made it. I get to, I get to be the one who defines what it's about and what the boundaries are. So we have this other story here about the Sabbath. Now, did these happen on the same Sabbath? Well, they could have, but more than likely, Matthew's building a case here, right? So he's talking about the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They, they asked uh, to Jesus. Jesus says, well, if you had a sheep that fell in a pit, wouldn't you lift it out? Isn't a person worth far more than a sheep? So, of course, it's lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Now, this goes against man-made laws that the Pharisees had. So when he says, stretch out your hand, and the man stretches his hand out and it's restored, the Pharisees become furious because he's lecturing them in public in front of everyone, showing them up with his magic show of healing these people that they are not really understanding of what that's about, which you'll see here in a minute. And so here in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Okay, this is now getting serious. Uh, They didn't like him before. They didn't like getting um, shown up by him before. But now they've decided we have to kill this guy. So Jesus becomes aware of this and withdraws. Crowds follow him anyway. He heals them all. And then there's a long section here from Isaiah, which, uh, again, is really about Jesus's gentleness, Jesus's uh, justice and his mercy and uh, I believe is the longest quoted passage of Old Testament scripture in Matthew, maybe in all the Gospels. Then there's a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak, and Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. So it was thought at the time that if someone had any kind of infirmity, many times it was attributed to demons of some kind. And uh, so it may be that this I mean, It says the man was demon-possessed, so it may be that this particular person was, in fact, uh, demon-possessed. I suppose it could be just speaking to the thinking of the time. Um, and maybe there's a lot of things that we don't understand today. The text says the man was demon-possessed, so I will believe that the man was demon-possessed, because I believe everything else that the text is telling me. So the crowds are astounded, and they say, could this be the son of David? So the son of David... Of course, the first son of David of note was Solomon, right? David had many sons, but Solomon is the one that we remember. He's the one who was supposed to be king and reign forever, or someone from the line of Solomon, from the line of David. And there are some writings, some extra biblical writings around the time, Testament of Solomon, uh, I think the wisdom of Solomon. And some of these things point to different healings and different things that would be done. And again, some of them are kind of Messiah-like things. And of course, people know the Messiah is going to be a king. Uh, from the line of David. And so that's what they're asking about. Hey, he's doing these things. So that's why they ask the son of David comment as they see these healings taking place, especially casting out these demons. They say, here's someone that has magnificent spiritual power, healing and, and, and over demon possession. This must be this line of David king that we've been waiting for. So when the Pharisees hear about this, what they try to tell the crowd is he's able to drive these demons out the reason he has authority over them is because he's a demon himself. He drives them out by Beelzebul, which really is a kind of a euphemism for Satan. Beelzebul was the, the, the head, the sort of the chief demon, and really just another name for, for Satan, as they say right here, the ruler of the demons. And so he says, well, if he's able to have authority over a demon, it must be because he's a demon himself. Of course, they never considered, they would not entertain the notion that he had authority over them because he was God himself over everything spiritual and physical. But Jesus knows their thoughts, and he makes a really great argument here that would be um, really nice to break down. Uh, my friend Jonathan breaks down, I think the I think this is in Mark also, and he breaks down the version of this from the Gospel of Mark and does a really excellent job with it. I'll see if I can uh, find it. Maybe I'll, I'll tweet it out later or something like that. But he makes this really great argument about, you know, does it doesn't make any sense What is what he's saying, that uh, Satan would cast out demons. Demons are doing the work that Satan wants done. There's no sense in it. And then he warns them that when you say what's happening over here is being done by Satan. And that thing is actually being done by God. You are in really dangerous territory. What he says is whoever speaks a word against the son of man. In other words, Jesus, Hey, if you speak a word against me, it can be forgiven. It will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy spirit, the, the, the working that is doing these things, the Holy Spirit from God, well, that will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the one to come. So what this is really about is if you see the Holy Spirit working and you are so religious that you cross your arms and say, I'm sorry, that doesn't fit what I understand about Christianity, that that's what they're doing is is something else. Jesus is letting you know, if you're going to be religious and ignore what the Holy Spirit is doing, and in fact say that it is unscriptural, and in fact say that what they're doing, in essence, if it's not of the Holy Spirit, then it's got to be of Satan. It's one or the other. So if you're not going to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit, you're in really dangerous territory, and I don't know how you're going to find forgiveness, because the Holy Spirit is the one who does it. And from there, he goes on with this text that just makes sense, hey, you A good tree is going to have good fruit and a bad tree is going to have bad fruit. This is now the third time that we've sort of heard this lesson. We've heard it once before when Jesus delivered it early on. We heard it before that when John the Baptist talked about it. You can go back and look at the the preceding chapters of Matthew uh, to to see all about that. And here we have Jesus using the term brood of vipers, which is something also that John the Baptist said uh, earlier in the Gospel And he's saying the way you can tell if someone's good or someone's bad, is by what comes out of their mouth and the things that they do. This goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11. Hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Well, look at what I say and do. You just go tell John what you see and hear. When you tell him what you see and hear, he will know. He'll have full confidence. Reader, as you read Gospel of Matthew, you're asking yourself, is Jesus the Messiah? Matthew's telling you, here's what you've seen Jesus do. And here's what you've heard him teach. It should be clear. Jesus is definitely the Messiah. And he tells them that there will uh, says an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Now, this might mean a a generation that asks for a sign that makes them adulterous and evil. That could be what that means. I don't think it's what it means. I think it's weird because of the wording here, but I think what this means is this generation as Jesus is talking to these people, this generation in front of me, which happens to be demanding a sign, this generation is evil and adulterous. So it's not that asking for a sign makes you evil and adulterous. Otherwise, Gideon would be evil and adulterous, right? Um, but instead, what he's saying is, hey, look, you're asking for a sign, but you're evil and adulterous. So why should why should you get a sign? You're not even headed in the right direction. I mean, imagine if you were going in the wrong direction on the interstate and you were looking at the signs, trying to figure out what exit was next. You wouldn't be able to read any of them. You'd be looking at the back of them, right? Jesus is saying, hey, well, there's no point in giving you a sign. You're not going the right way. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, we always take classically the sign of Jonah is spending three days in, uh, in the tomb, the same as Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of the fish. But there's a more important sign of Jonah. What Remember what the story of Jonah is about. Jonah is a prophet that is told to go to Nineveh, the worst, most evil, worldly place, pagan place, evil place uh, of Jonah's time. God tells Jonah to go and to preach to them repentance. Jonah doesn't want to do it. There's a big to-do about it. And it's really uh, uh, kind of an allegory for uh, the Jewish people, how they really thought they were better than the nations surrounding them. God tells Jonah to go. Jonah finally shows up to Nineveh, preaches a three-second sermon, and all of Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes. And so what Jesus is saying is really foreshadowing what's going to come in the book of Acts. Okay, you religious people, you're going to deny this, and you're going to get the sign of Jonah because every evil pagan is going to renounce their ways and come and worship Jesus and come and worship God, come and desire the Holy Spirit. They're going to desire mercy. When you look at what happened in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, you see people who were practicing witchcraft coming out and burning their witchcraft books in the middle of the street as they are converting to faith, trusting and following in Jesus Christ because of the teaching of Priscilla and Aquila and and Paul and Timothy and others that's, I think, what Jesus was referring to when he says, you're going to see the sign of Jonah. You're going to see the most evil people in the world, the people that you hate, the people that you think you're better than, because you have decades of study, because you know all the scrolls, because you've got all the commentaries memorized. The people that you hate, they're going to be the ones that turn their lives upside down, repent, are forgiven of their sins, are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one day they're going to be preaching to you. You're going to receive the sign of Jonah. And he tells them something greater than Jonah is here. And he tells them, you talk about the wisdom of Solomon, something greater than Solomon is here. Remember at the beginning, they asked, could this be the son of David? And Jesus is saying, yes, but even better. Jesus is a better Abraham. He's a better Moses. He's a better David. He's a better Solomon. He's a better Jonah. And he's even better than the Messiah they expect. And then he finishes up talking about The uh, demon being cast out and coming back to a clean place. So he's sort of returning back to his original argument that he was making. And he says, when one evil goes out, if there's nothing done in the house, more will come in and take its place. And that's what's going to happen with this evil generation. You will not hear the truth whatever you evil you think you're casting out you're not filling up you're not fulfilling the law you're not filling yourself up with law and love and you're just going to be filled with more evil and so this section ends before he gets into the parables with people saying look your mother your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you and Jesus says who are my mother and who are my, who is my mother and who are my brothers and he stretches his hand out to his disciples And he says, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The kingdom has arrived. It has turned everything upside down. And now even my family is not my family. Now the kingdom is my family. The kingdom is my brother and my sister and my mother, my father. These people here, these are the people, the people who do the will of God in heaven, my father in heaven. Those are the people who are my family. And so once again, he takes from the ideas of religion. Hey, are you this Messiah that we've been hearing about that we've been taught about? he goes all the way from religion works all the way through the religious people and gets to relationship. Discipleship is about relationship. It's about trusting and following and doing it together with your brothers and sisters. So I'm going to go back to, um, one last thing that, um, Jesus says, and it's in verse 30 of Matthew 12. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. One more time. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. That's it. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no other choices, with or against. Gathering or scattering. That's it. Those are the choices. Gathering or scattering. Discipleship is about gathering. It's about fishing for people. And if you're not doing discipleship, if you're not gathering, you're scattering. If you're not actively Seeking and saving the lost, if you're not actively reaching out, building relationships with people, bringing them into relationship with Scripture so that they can have their own relationship with God, so that they can repent, so that they can receive forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit through baptism. If you're not actively doing that, Jesus says, hey, if you're not gathering, then you're scattering. You're making the problem worse. You're treasonous to the kingdom of righteousness. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering or you're scattering. And so as you think about the kind of discipleship that you're doing in your life, the kind of relationships that you have where you're helping other people trust and follow Jesus, as you assess that, you got to ask yourself that question. Am I gathering or am I scattering? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.